Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 137. This is our first time back in front of the microphones together collectively. Um, we, we use Skype. Do you guys know that? We use Skype like old people. Like, hey, let's Skype. Like it was used to be a verb. You know what I mean? Now it's not really a verb anymore. You mm. say let's Skype and have people have to look up Urban Dictionary. Would you prefer for, like, we what are you use trying to say? Teams or something? Like, I don't know what teams? people use. I think people just use like FaceTime in, in my experience. Yeah. We all say, let's get on the Skype. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Walter, and joining me today are Azil. Hello. Grail. Hello. And Gobola Tula. Hi, hi. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're back. Uh, we've been back. I think we've it's been about a month and a half or so, right? month and, uh, and some change uh, yeah. since we got back from Japan. Hmm. Uh it's been a very gray winter out here, and it feels gray, has felt gray for me since leaving Japan. It's been, it has been kind of down in the dumps is not the right word. I've just, I had like a post-trip boy. That was awesome, and real life is not as awesome, and <laughs> the state of berserk is not awesome compared to the everything I saw in Japan, you know? So that mm-hmm. kind of went through that for like a full month. It's called depression. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they call it. Shit. I should look that up on Urban Dictionary too. <laughs> um, but I did this morning pour myself some green tea from our favorite old man uh, that we met in Japan. And that, that was my first really good batch of green tea that I've made since the trip. And it was, it, it really brightened my morning, honestly. Mm, cool. Good stuff. I opened the gold bag, the one that cost 3,500 yen or something like that. Um, the good shit. The good stuff. <laughs> it was really good. So, yeah, we're back. And the main thing we're here to discuss is to revive the reread. So we're at volume 29. It's been, I think it was June of last year when we last touched the reread. And that is, of course, because it was around then that the continuation kicked off. And we've been doing month-by-month episodes or podcasts since then. Uh, so the reread was on pause during that. But now it's back. And so we're happy to jump back into volume 29. It's got a lot of favorite moments in here, um, but we'll get to them. So uh, there is a little bit of news. The first is that, uh, you know, we're fresh from the Sapporo edition of the big Berserk exhibition, but the next arm wing leg of that tour will be in Fukuoka uh, from April 29th through May 14th. Uh, I highly recommend anyone who is financially capable of doing so to go check it out. Uh, I really, really, really enjoyed my time. I think about it literally every day uh, since I've been back. Really, really amazing stuff to go see in person. Pays for itself. Absolutely. I don't regret any dollar or yen that I spent. Honestly, it's been, it's been, it was great. So please go check that out if you are capable of doing that. If you're a big enough Berserk fan, you know, consider this that it, another thing like this might not happen again. It could, it could absolutely happen. Mm. Think like think like on the 50th anniversary, you know, because this is all about the 30th anniversary. Imagine for the 50th. Yeah, sure. That's 20 years away. There are lots of variables in life. You know what I mean? So just consider that when you're planning. Yeah. I'll be dead. Yeah. <laughs> they might also not do it for the 50th anniversary anyway. So. Totally. So that's coming up May 14th. Sorry, April 29th through May 14th. The next piece of news, it's really not that much, but there was an announcement on Young Animal. They kind of redid their website a little bit. And yeah. part of the redo 
is that they've offered with a login creation, you can uh, read the Japanese edition of each Berserk episode for free, which is really cool. You can just dive into any episode, sort of. My experience is that I was able to read one episode and then it said you had to wait three days to get the next free episode. But you can check it out at younganimal.com if you're interested. I do really like the having access to the Japanese edition of Berserk at my fingertips is very cool. Of course, what's weird about this whole thing is that it appears to be a two-week promo and then it'll go back to likely costing per episode. It's 70 coins per uh, read, I guess. And a coin, I believe, is close to a yen. I think that's right, or if if not close to it. So consider it's probably about 50 cents USD for an episode, which is pretty great, I think. Mm. What's weird about this whole thing is they already have a digital component. Hakusensha, the publisher, has hakusensha-e.net. That's where I've been getting my digital berserk, and I've mm. got several volumes that I've purchased with, with coins, a totally different coin currency. Uh, and those don't transfer over, and your ownership of other titles doesn't not carry over. Oh and boy. these do not include, you know, the Young Animal magazines. These are just older episodes, volumes one through forty of Berserk. So it's weird. There's two different shops for digital Berserk currently. I think it's a little strange. Yeah. Well, they've done this kind of promotion before, where you get access to the first. Mm-hmm. I mean, every volume except the, the latest one, <clears throat> it's a way to get people to, well, read the series and then get hooked up and, and buy the latest volume and then maybe want to actually start a collection. So, uh, yeah, not unusual, but like you mentioned, it's a bit, uh, I mean, as far as the business model goes and so on, it's, it's a little strange that they would do a separate shop for mm-hmm. like each of their magazines <clears throat> in addition to the gi- gigantic uh, Hakusen Shai shops that has got every magazine, every series ever published. But then again, this is Japan, so are we surprised? Not really. Yeah, Azil actually made fun of me for thinking, oh, I'm, at least my coins will carry over. And he was like, they're not going to carry over. I'm yeah, like, I mean, what, Damn. A, what, what a joke. <laughs> <laughs> It might be the same system. I haven't even tried it, honestly. As I followed the announcement, they had said like something like two weeks ago that uh, surprise would be coming for like as the, the tail end of the 30th anniversary of the magazine. Because uh, that was actually last year, the 30th anniversary. But I guess they did a you know, series of little events of no consequence to all listeners. And this is uh, the big thing they did at the end, which was, yeah, redo the website, which honestly they needed to redo because, yeah, it's been like 10 years or so. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'm not even sure it's the same technology as the ones they're using for Hakusen Shai. They might have redeveloped oh, wow. or paid a company to redevelop something uh, on the side. So, I mean, either way, whether it's the same tech or something else, they had somebody redo in the end, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but what do you want? Yeah. Oh, well, it's it's not great. I would say the user interface and the overall browsing experience, it, it's not great. I do quite like uh, Hakusen Shai, though. I mean, I don't know what you think, yeah. but uh, yeah. I, I use it uh, quite regularly. I, I like it. It's just a little sluggish to me. You know, it can't really keep up with my reading pace. And yeah, I'm, you know, true. It just yeah. kind of loads, kind of buffers a little too slowly to me. Yeah, the, the reader isn't very intuitive for me, but hey, I mean, the, the quality is, is good. I wish it was double the quality, <laughs> personally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the, the volume quality is higher than the yes. magazine, which is... That's true. 
kind of annoying as far as the magazine goes, but I mean, it's nice that at least they're making an effort with that. But yeah, I do wish it was higher as well. And uh, I regret- It didn't bug me. I'm sorry, sorry. I stepped right on top of your toes. Go ahead. No, no problem. I was just going to say, I, I miss the times where we had, you know, the uh, desktop uh, thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they still have one, but uh, I, you, you could like download your volumes as a special file in your little desktop reader. That was also, that was better. Faster. Surely that's that's probably still around. I've just never investigated it. Because, yeah, I remember it, and then I stopped using it just for convenience, basically. Yeah, could, could um, be. But, yeah, the, the, the quality thing is only really a factor if you're trying to read the Japanese text. And, like, small text like Puck's or Citro's lines in the backgrounds are actually impossible to read in the digital edition of uh, Young Animal right now. This is a bummer. Mm. Oh, um, gosh. But sharper in the volumes, as Azil said. So, mm-hmm. anyway. That's it. Uh, the final piece of news is that episode 372 of Berserk is not out yet. We kind of expected it this month in March, but it is not. It's not going to happen this month. Uh, the reason we think it's going to be soon is because, boy, uh, what's his name? Kurosaki. Kurosaki. Yeah. Kurosaki uh, had made a tweet saying that episode 372 is complete. So everyone's like, oh, it's going to be next week or the next two weeks or whatever. It's not out yet. Probably April, mm-hmm. I would bet. Um, no reason. Yeah. To expect it sooner than that anymore, but April probably. Um, so I guess look forward to that. Um, new yeah. arc. <laughs> new arc. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in, in someone had mentioned it. And at first I kind of like saw the comment askance, like, well, really? Why does that matter? Someone had said that they're excited about the name of the new arc, but the name would give us some indication of where things are headed. So yeah, mm. that would be cool. Unless it's something really generic. You know what I mean? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, we'll I'm, see. I'm still thinking Age of Darkness. That would mm, be great. Versus, yeah, simple, effective, makes sense. Not A parallel for the Golden Age. I would love it. Yeah, and I mean, foretold and everything. So yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Would make yeah. sense to me, but let's let's just wait and see because uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm very. I'd say expectant at this point. I'm just not trying not to think of what they might do or not. I'll just I'll just see yep. what they put out and then we'll judge. Yep. I think it'll be called Guts Grows a Beard. That'd be great. <laughs> be even so it's just saying what we've seen so far Berserk is like a, equivalent to Star Trek TNG season one. <laughs> and moving forward, it's just gonna get better. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. That's great. I look forward to that. If that's yeah. the promise. Guts rakerfies himself. Explain <laughs> the trombone. I think it was yeah. Griffith, uh, not the character, the first the forum and podcast member. He had he and I in the early two thousands like made jokes about it'd be great if Guts did have a beard, and we mocked up Photoshop images of what Guts would look like with a great awesome beard, and they did look really cool. He would look good yeah. with a beard. Yeah, Griff, Griff also did like an Oikaki a drawing of Guts with a mustache. I think there you go. Yeah, it, it was, was actually was supposed really to be into a the facial hair. Thomas Magnum mm. kind of That's stash, right. I think yeah. it was. That's right. And he, of course, did the 20 years later uh, little prank where Gus mm-hmm. does have a beard you know, based on Godos. Yeah, he really got everybody with that there one. There you go. All right, let's go ahead and start the main event, which is the reread for Volume 29. I'd like to start with the cover. I really like this cover. Um, it's thematically elegant because it does that thing where it's not just an action pose right it has meaning to what you're seeing here with the beast's eye kind of being haunting in a way and guts on his guard 
you know, but there's no enemy in sight, but the enemy, of course, is, you know, him. So I really like this because it comes across as cool. And yet, if you really think about it, it's conceptually hard to portray some of those things, right? Like, there's, as I said, there's no enemy on screen, but he looks on guard. So I think that's a difficult thing to portray with one shot in the way that this effectively conveys it here. Yeah. I really like this one too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> not much to add to what you've already said, but pretty cool, pretty cool shot. Like you said, I like that it's uh, it's from the back. We've got mm-hmm. look, looking looking back at the reader. So interesting pose, interesting. Mirada did like to do uh, a lot of challenging things with regard to poses and, and the like. And <clears throat> yeah, I think this one is really, just really works. Love it. And like you said, the... The beast side in the cape is really subtle because the, the cape is marred with blood. So it's almost like just one more stain among the rest, but the shape is very, uh, how to say, you recognize it right away. So yeah, like yep. you, like you mentioned, it's like it's creeping out or just being there as a, as a, as a little threat, but subdued a little bit. So very nice. Uh, yeah, the color is also nice because it's otherwise almost you know, in a way, monochrome because of the white background and gut skin and the black armor. But the red really stands out in a way. Uh, and, and it's also done with a different brush, like a bit kind of a, I don't know the brush guys, but it's uh, more splattered, right, than mm-hmm. sharp. So mm-hmm. looks very cool. Opening it up, we have a two-sided poster. The first is Farnese in her ball gown that she'll later wear towards the end of this volume. Um, I think it's really, I didn't think about this until I reread one of those, one of those things from me where, yeah, it's Farnese in a dress kind of like who cares, but I was thinking about it and it's kind of strange to see this particular depiction of Farnese because, you know, of how we have historically known her, you know, we, she's introduced to us as commander of the Holy Iron Chain Knights in armor. Right. And later she becomes a traveling companion with gut of guts, but here she's portrayed as, you know, in her natural state, who she would have been had she stayed in the shadow of the Vandemian, right? The, a lady of the age that goes around banquets and balls and such, right? So it's so strange right. to see this character who we know in much different contexts here in a ball gown. So, yeah, that struck me more now than in other rereads. Yeah, nice. I, I kind of like the fact it's very, how to say, like her pose and stuff. It's very reminiscent of how you'd imagine you know, Renaissance paintings of like novel ladies and the like. So obviously it's not mm-hmm. really the same, the same style. It's not, it's not an old painting in this case. And, and the, the background and such is very simple compared to what these guys would do, you know, because they usually were bored during these uh, paintings is like women for stuff for hire. So they do like the, these great backgrounds and have fun with that stuff. But yeah, just the fact she's like you said, in that kind of a ball, uh, dress and that attire i don't know i just find it uh an interesting an interesting thing yeah she's trapped in the painting just like how she's trapped in the family yeah. Yeah. she's posed right it's a pose you're right, you're right. It's yeah she's posed there i really like her expression yeah placid she looks a little bored a little miserable yeah <laughs> it's almost it's actually not even that it's more of a nothing it's just a vacant expression you know which i think is appropriate mm. Well, again, I think that that's if you look at uh, a lot of uh, paintings from the Renaissance era and that kind of stuff, a lot of people had very these blank expressions a little bit. So, mm-hmm. 
I think that fits uh, the theme. Because they would have to sit for hours, so they couldn't afford to have like a big smile, <laughs> probably. Yeah, and also I think it's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think like huge smiles and stuff like that. That wasn't a thing back then. You know, it's kind of right, like on the, on old <laughs> photographs. I know in Asia, like the thing is like you you need to have real blank face. Like smiling is not a thing. So yeah. if you look at like. Uh, I don't know, in Japan or Korea or stuff like that, if you look at old pictures, usually they are very stern looking. So that's, yeah, might be the yeah. thing. In the 1800s, everyone looked pissed. I mean, they're just the 1800s just sucked because all the 1800s pictures I've seen, everyone just looks pissed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because, like I said, I think that was more like of a cultural thing. It's like you're yeah. not supposed to be smiling. You're supposed to, like it's a serious thing. And if you think about like how much money it costs to get your picture taken at the time, you know, there's kind of a sense sure. to it. It's like, I mean, what are you having fun for? I, I paid like a hundred bucks sure. for this, <laughs> which is like the price of a building or something. Well, in the picture, in the case of like getting your picture taken, you would have to hold that expression for several minutes, right? Oh my while, God. The, while the picture. So, yeah. yeah. I couldn't remember how long it was. It's a long time. And there's also a part of people of that and that age when photography was so new where in the back of their head, they're like, are you going to take my soul or uh, <laughs> is that what you're What's doing? What's going to happen to me? Yeah. Let's go to poster B. I call it poster B now today. Right. Okay. <laughs> sure. I wrote down poster B on my notes. That's why yeah. I'm saying that. Um, I, I, this is one of those other things that I realized for the first time and it's really dumb and you're going to make fun of me. Uh, she's in a dress too. I didn't even think about it before. Oh, wow. <laughs> my God. <laughs> I just never thought about it. It's like, oh, yeah, seashell-themed dress. Sure, sure. I didn't think about the other side of the poster is Farnese in a dress. So yeah. it's like Eva Lira composed her own dress of elf-sized things to, you know, uh, dress herself up in. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah and seashells because they're on the seaside. There you go. Yeah, both Vritanis itself being a seaside city, you know, like, like you know. Like Wyndham? Like Mindem, Mindem, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you were, I knew you were going for it, so I had yep. to undercut you. <laughs> you beat me to it. That's fine. Uh, uh, but also the fact that they were, they were just on the beach, right? So uh, either yeah. one applies here perfectly. Um, I feel like there's, there's a joke about what Puck is doing, but I don't know what it's a reference to. Like, uh, is it just that he's poking his head out, or is that a reference to some piece of art that I don't know about? Um, I don't know. I, mean, I feel like it is, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, if there's a reference, I, I don't know it. I always figure it was just just him being funny, but uh, yeah. if that's like a super deep art reference, uh, I'll, I'll be shocked and, uh, and amazed. Yeah, I maybe, don't know either. Maybe someone will let us know in the, in the comments. I would like to know if I'm just missing something obvious. I'm, I must precise for the listener of the future that Wyndham is not a seaside city. Really. Oh, fuck. We're just making fun of the fact it was fucking, fucking modified, I guess. You say retconned. You're retconned by the fucking Mori and, and the new, new team, uh, for the continuation, because I guess it's convenient for what they want to do in the future. So Falconia is a, has a port and is near the sea and, uh, not, and so yeah, on. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, it's not actually the case. Yeah. Sorry, I had to add that little disclaimer because... Yeah, it makes sense, too. Otherwise, I'll feel bad. <laughs> yep. Um, moving on to, I guess it's the insert thing. Mm. Cool cool guy guts leaning against the wall here. Uh, hey, you missed a little puck uh, thing uh, for, hmm? for the... On the, like, uh, I don't even know the flap. 
Oh, sorry. I'm looking at the Dark Horse Edition. Oh, Such yeah. a thing doesn't they exist. They don't have them. Oh, my God. What a shame. Well, well then describe a, it for us. Yeah, it's Puck as a, as a fisherman, basically. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say. He's, uh, he's looking like a very typical Japanese fisherman. Um, he's got like, I think he's fishing for lobsters. So he's got a cigarette, a straw hat, uh, dressed in really, uh, typical Japanese garb. And he's standing on, on a little, uh, wooden pillar sticking out of the sea. Uh, mm. He's got his little case with a lobster next to him or a crab. <laughs> and, uh, he draws in the background. Uh, he got a crab that is about to fall into the sea. So it's just a little thing, but uh, looks pretty great. And yeah, I forgot Dakos cool. didn't have these. That's, that's pretty... Yeah, we, we missed out on those. That's a shame. Yeah, there's no dust jacket in the Dark Horse. It's just cardboard binding, mm. and that's it. Yeah. Pretty and I know cheap, some, some editions, actually, I recently got a, a German one for to get one of the bonuses. They don't have the posters. Yeah, also, it's weird. What a shame. Yeah, yeah. that sucks. Uh, this insert with guts is cool guy guts leaning against the, the side. I would say this is a, a kind of a strange pick for this volume because it, I don't think it's very emblematic of the volume in, in a way. It's, it's a cool moment, but I wouldn't say that this moment, you know, feels like volume 29 to me in, in the same way as, you know, things that are focused on the kids or with uh, Farnese. That's where the focus of this volume is anyway, for, mm. to me. Yeah, but it's got to be guts, you know. Yeah, I mean, I get it. He's on the cover, and he's the guy. He's the sword guy. He's Berserk, Mister Berserk. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But yeah, I agree. Uh, now that we've done all the accompanying things, I do. Whenever we're starting a new volume, I like to think about what is Volume Twenty Nine about. Like, what is its overall place in the story? And I wrote that question down uh, when I started reading this, doing this reread, and. The conclusion I kind of came to after reading the whole thing again was I kind of think of volume 29, I mean, inevitably as the beginning of the Vertanus conflict. So I don't think about it just by itself. I think of what it leads to. And I think it's important that this particular volume starts with kids versus adults. That's the whole theme of the upcoming fight with the pirates is that the kids are taking on adults, right? I think of that and I kind of extend that to whenever Van Dimian tries to stare down Ganeshka in a way, right? And Ganeshka in turn tries to take on the God hand and fails. You know what I mean? Like I see this as kind of a, um, they're starting it in a whimsical way of testing the boundaries for these kids versus adults, uh, conflict and Van Dimian himself being someone who, controls humans in his own way for banking purposes, really. Ganeshka tries to spin things in his way to take on the God hand, right? Uh, and that doesn't work out. So I think of these as kind of mirrored in a way, at least. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, it's sort of like the little fish getting eaten by the bigger fish and then the bigger fish yes. and then the bigger fish. <laughs> I, the only reason that even resonates to me at all is when you're reading the Vandemian, when, when you're introduced to Vandemian, you know, Senior Vandemian, <laughs> uh, it's, it's really about Magnifico complaining about how his dad has placed his brothers in positions of power and influence. Why hasn't he done it for Magnifico? And the implication, of course, is that Van Demian is controlling things behind the scenes in a way that is, to me, reminiscent of how the God Hand have done things for centuries, right? Arranging things for their benefit through causality. Uh, of course, Vendemian is just doing it for money, but uh, I think of it as a parallel in a way. Like you, someone who is in a very controlling power and influence position 
how far can they go in this world as, a, as just a human? You know, we've mm-hmm. seen it. Mm. Uh, Kanishka can go further because he's an apostle. And he immediately stamps out any potential for humans to fight against him uh, whenever we see this conflict go forward. That's an interesting, uh, interesting thought. I guess more simply, I would say that this volume is about development for God's group. You know, not mm-hmm. so much about God himself, but the people around him. Obviously, Isidro and Shiruke uh, get a big development in the episodes we're going to talk about together with Sonia and Mule. But then you see uh, Farnese and Serpico. Uh, and yeah, like you said, that leads to the later events, but, uh, I feel like, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things, the introduction of Roderick, Magnifico, like you said, uh, Farnese's mother, uh, just that kind of Faustian bargain where, uh, she basically thinks to sacrifice herself and her happiness, uh, mm. so that they can get the ship and, and just lead the group. So th- that's an interesting thing. And of course, there's also that confrontation. Uh, with Serpico, which is, uh, the, the end of that little character arc with him and Guts, uh, that gets resolved. So, yeah, that's, that's how I would personally, at least that's how I've viewed this volume, uh, in the past. That's really cool. I think I thought of this volume as sort of like kind of the beginning of pulling out and pulling back in, in the way that Berserk is always sort of shifting and, and changing focus. And uh, for me, this volume was like shifting out to see the larger world before we kind of pull back into the more mystical or magical elements. So you get context for what's happening. That's one thing that I always like that Mira did is helping you see context for what's happening so that mm. you don't get kind of too lost in, in the more fantastical elements of the series. Yeah, yeah, he also does... Aside from everything we mentioned, he also does set up a lot of elements and context for what happens afterwards, so that when it does happen, it feels very natural. It's like, oh yeah, obviously, uh, Britain is, yeah, there's all these soldiers and so on and blah, blah, blah. But actually, it's just been set up like seven episodes earlier. But because it's done so seamlessly, it feels completely natural when something big happens that builds upon these elements. That's true. That's very true. Uh, the other part of the volume is, of course, uh, as you already alluded to, and, and to me it's about testing and tying the bonds of the group together before the big journey ahead. Uh, because these, these people have traveled together, uh, but I don't think it's enough to show them traveling together. They actually have to have conflicts, and they have to come together as a family. And that, that actually happens twice in this volume. The first, when they have that moment uh, at the dinner in the bar, with the bar fight, right? Guts stands up for... Uh, Shirke, which means a lot to her. And also, the Guts determines that they have to go and get Farnese, you know, uh, towards the end of this volume as well. So, yeah, it's not enough to just say that they are companions. They have to show that they are friends and family in a way. Uh, and that's, mm-hmm. to me, what that's the, that's the beating heart of this particular volume. And it's important because they're about to go on a big journey together. So they can't just be, you know, people passing by who just coordinate their movements. They're friends, and they have to ex- demonstrate that. So this, uh, this volume gives them many opportunities to demonstrate that. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll start with episode 347, which is titled bloodshed. We pick up where we left off with Shirke and Sonia on the pier with the pirates and the captured Kushin child slaves. Shirke confirms that she's a real witch and insists the pirates let go of the children, but these pirates have clearance. 
they'd purchased these slaves legitimately. So these kids fell through the cracks because of the war. Their parents, as Kushans, were hung, and we can't have Kushans in the midst of the Holy See during a war, so the kids are an inconvenient detail. And the solution is to sell them to pirates for trading. Shirke doesn't really care how they came upon owning these slaves, she just wants justice. So she mesmerizes a pirate with a bonk to her staff, immobilizing him, which leads to escalation when Isidro arrives and bonks him again in the head with a stone. Isidro makes fun of the pirates for picking up kids instead of hot ladies, but the tone changes as soon as he slices an artery of the pirate. Drawing blood changes the mood of the others who are now out for blood themselves. It's become a real fight for Isidro, and he insists that Shirke leave the fight to him. Instead, Shirke quietly contacts Guts through thought transference. Meanwhile, Mule has arrived on his search for Sonia, and without hesitation starts killing the enemies. Seeing a peer seize the moment like this inspires Isidro to re-enter the battle, but just then, the boss pirate arrives with a flashy entrance, knocking Mule from his horse and telling the kids to know their place when dealing with adults. That's the episode. Action-packed, lots of fun, whimsical fighting happening on Isidro's part. I do love that this is the beginning of the rivalry for Mule and Isidro, and that's a big thing we're seeing in the next three episodes. It's all over the place. Um, I just want to get my foot in the door and say I've always thought of it, and I don't know if it's intentional or not, but I I can't help but think that it's a parody of the rivalry between Guts and Griffith early on. Uh, Mule is not Griffith. I recognize that. (laughs) But the way they fight, the way they are, their personalities, I can't help but think of them as paralleled in that way. Isidro is kind of like a rough, you know, scrawny Guts in a way, even though he doesn't fight like Guts. Mm. But compared to Mule, uh, who's always up on his horse fighting in a very, uh, what's the word, graceful style, much different than the way Isidro fights. So I thought of that when I was doing this. Um, The other thing I wanted to mention is that Isidro insists that Shirke stays out of it. You know, for one, it would attract attention because Shirke, when she starts using her staff, You know, her powers aren't always a very subtle thing. A flaming water wheel would be pretty attention-grabbing, right? Um, But I also get the sense that he wants to resolve this himself. Uh, And that doubles down when Mule arrives and starts killing without hesitation. He sees like he's been shown up for his own hesitation, right? So he's learning the realities of the battle uh, here. And he's been training. In real time, yeah. Yeah, It's not the same as attacking uh, a troll, And I really love that moment when he does slice it and he senses that things have changed, even though it's wordless at first, right? That, and the way that Miura has portrays that, um, by making him look scared and making them look serious, uh, I'm kind of dumbing it down, but it's a real moment when reality hits him for, he'd always envisioned becoming a warrior, right? This is, this is the path forward for that. He has to actually kill someone to make that happen. Uh, this is his first step in that direction. So it's nice that Mira paused for a moment to acknowledge that um, little step in that direction for Isidro. That's it for me. Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, go ahead, Greg. I was just going to say that I, I really like this string of episodes because it feels like a little bit more levity and uh, kind of characteristic for this part of the series before it gets really back into the into the – scary stuff but uh it's funny because i was thinking to myself oh yeah this is pretty light but then i remembered oh there's there's child slavery mass murder Mm. you know the threat of war it's like it's funny to think of this being like oh this is the this is the fun stuff when it really is still pretty heavy but that's just (laughs) characteristic of of the world that mirror has created in this case 
that was just something that I thought of. Yeah, for real. I, I do. The first thing that strikes me is the way it very naturally transitions from the hanged cushions that uh, Shiroke found to these guys who are slave traders because the people of the city won't, like, they can't kill the kids, but they also can't keep them. So they just sell them off as slaves, which is, uh, I think, a good uh, commentary in and of itself on people's piety as far as the Holy See goes and so on. It's reminiscent of the condemnation arc where we won't be killing kids. Oh, we'll just sell them as slaves to, to traders. And um, obviously, the, the the big deal in this episode to me is uh, the aforementioned bloodshed, where Isidro cuts the guy and the mood changes. And I think that's a very important for his character. Uh, I I don't know if I I see what you mean, Walter, with the parallel between uh, him and Mule and and Griffiths and Gus. I don't think I don't think it's like intentionally meant to be a parody of it or even a comparison to it. I think it just naturally arises from how these two characters are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think it's it's kind of, how to say, almost superficial. Like there is definitely a parallel that you can't avoid. But at the same time, Griffiths was not a noble uh, while Mule is. Mm-hmm. And Isidro here, what, what, what say, the def- definition, the, the, what say, the big difference between these two is that Isidro has never actually killed a man while Mule has been to war. And so they have a very different approach. Like Mule is hardened. He comes in and just you know, slaughters them without hesitating is what Isidro thinks. And, you know, Guts and Griffiths, when they first meet, both of them are very, I mean, they, they are just, Guts has been fighting and killing people since he was six. So it's a, yeah, it's a very different situation. But like you mentioned, there is indeed a, a parallel that you can't quite uh, escape. And um, I mean, same goes with other characters like Sonia, if you can be compared to Casca, these kind of things. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to take into, into consideration these episodes. But yeah. Um, to go back to what Grail was saying, I, I do like the, the humor in this, even though the situation is actually not very funny in, in and of itself, but, uh, the way Sonia reacts to everything, uh, the way Mule and Isidro kind of builds up the little rivery, uh, I think it's really great. And also the way Isidro fights the, the pirates. It's a slamming one in the balls, this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. He he does <laughs> his usual very unconventional fighting style, which is uh, a delight to see. I mean, uh, rereading this, I really enjoyed myself seeing Puck help him doing Puck Spark. I mean, that's that's just classic stuff. So very very nice overall. I really enjoyed that little segment. Uh, Sonia, you mentioned it. I just wanted to specify that she's kind of giving light commentary uh, from the margins throughout the whole thing. Yeah. What's funny about Sonia is, you know, in keeping with her personality, nothing's very serious. It's all kind of funny and cute. And she's just kind of like, oh, yeah, look at that. They're doing pretty good. <laughs> Even though they were yeah. just being threatened uh, to go into slavery for a moment ago. So, Well, there's also a thing with her is that she can literally see the future. So sure. it's not really a mod deep thing where she actually sees every event before they happen. So she becomes half mad from it. But uh, I think she like, that's part of what makes her so odd and what makes her speciali- personality a little bit, uh, I could say silly like that. Uh, plus the fact she's, I think she's fundamentally uh, just a wacky girl, you know? Yeah. 
Mule does come across as very cool in this episode. The, the moment when he draws his sword is a really cool panel, I think. He looks a little more heroic and cool than he really is. <laughs> and <laughs> honestly, uh, he's just a teenager that has been hanging out with the right people, the right crowd. You know, he's on the in crowd. He, he, he also does seem like a tryhard asshole to me. I mean, I'm on, I'm on Timmy Cidro here. He comes in all, <laughs> all high and mighty. And uh, sure, he's on a horse. He's got his sword. He's got an advantage. But uh, yeah, he's a little bit too full of himself. He does feel very much like what you would expect a, a teenager from a noble family uh, would do, you know, in a situation like this. He's really like he embodies the character perfectly. Uh, whereas Isidro is really uh, more of a scrappy fighter. So mm-hmm. it, it is a great, I mean, it really is a great uh, rivalry between them. It's really perfect. And I feel like Mura probably didn't, did not have it in mind when boss characters were created. Uh, but it, it just must have felt obvious to him that it would go so well together to have them fight. Uh, yeah. Each in their corner trying to one up the other against these, uh, these miscreants. There's this um, funny exchange that's repeated between Sonia and Shirke that I wanted to mention. You know, in the last episode when they were on the pier, Sonia gives this, gives this analogy about, okay, I'm going to get all the animals wrong, but she's a, what is she, a, a duck? No, she's not a duck. What is she? I she forgot. She's a kite. Thank you. She's a kite. Mm. And she dreams that uh, she's able to fl- soar along with the, the falcon. Yeah. Uh, and the other, you know, the apostles are dragons, etc. You, you yeah. get it, right? Uh, and this one, uh, having shared that, when Isidro first comes on the scene, Sonia wonders if uh, Isidro is the one that Shirke had been preoccupied with in her thoughts earlier. She, of course, was thinking about guts. So does this look on Shirke's face of like, absolutely not. He's not the one on my mind. You know? <laughs> and then later when uh, Mule arrives, uh, Shirke says, oh, is he the Falcon? And she's like, nope, he's more like a duck. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she's on my watchdog. And then she says the duck knight. Yeah, yeah because yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, the tale, she, the little parable, she tells Shirke is, uh, I'd say it's a twist on the ugly duckling. Right. Where uh, she's not a swan, but she's a kite. But yeah, she's among the ducks. And so the old ducks, uh, Charlotte is a duck uh, princess or whatever. And so that's why he's a duck knight. Mm-hmm. I like I like his expression when she says so. He's like, oh, God. <laughs> yep. He knew it would be something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the episode. Uh, ends with the boss. We haven't mentioned him yet. Uh, yeah, his character design. Wow. He really just leaned into... All sorts of pirate stuff, right? They got yeah. the eye patch. He's got the peg leg. He's got the big pointy beard. He's got mm. the hat. He's he looks like a he's, he's got it all. And then Sonia, very stereotypical. I mean, Mira even draws attention to the stereotypes with with Sonia at the end, saying, "I say he's a pirate." Like, oh, nice, yeah. good job, good yeah. good guess there, lady. In yeah. in, in, <laughs> in Japanese, she she and Ivara say definitely a, a pirate. <laughs> so it's an expression that means like, like 100% a pirate. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. when, and that's again a reference to when the first, the, the other guys come, she say, Oh, you guys must be pirates. And they're like, mm. Oh, no, no, we're merchants. That's uh, right. We're not pirates anymore. And so this guy, she's like, You know, no fucking doubt it is. And so, yeah. Yeah. Shiruke herself is like, I mean, he's like a spitting image of a, of a pirate. And uh, yeah, definitely he's got that kind of a long John Silver. Peg leg mm-hmm. and uh, crush seeing and yeah the whole you can uh, actually see his hidden blade and his, his peg leg already like a little spoiler there yeah yeah a little 
And same cool. with the uh, what's to come. Same with the with the crutch actually. Oh yeah, he's like got, right, right, right. He's got a crossbow there, and that's already like on his introduction. You can already see his hidden weapons. They're already okay, there. Okay, cool. Yeah. I here's the thing. I, I understand that uh, many people don't like boss and the pirates for what they represent later. The the continued rematches, etc. I like the boss. I think the boss is funny. Yeah. I like I like that he is a good match for Asidro, and Asidro actually. You know, honestly, becomes a better fighter through his encounters with this guy. Yeah, uh, I like that he is both serious and comical at the same time. I like that he <laughs> has that balance between he's he's acting so serious in a way that's funny. I think is what I like about him. Yeah, it's very hard to take him seriously, and yet he looks kind of menacing yeah. at the same time. Yeah, it's totally. walking that fine line. Yeah, it's uh, it goes back to I mean we'll see in, uh, in the episodes to come, but what I mentioned uh, when. Depending on the perspective, on which character's perspective, somebody can be very menacing or can be a buffoon. And uh, it's very different when he's fighting the kids from when he steps on somebody's face and then he's immediately not even, it's not even a threat. He's not even mm-hmm. in there anymore. So yep. uh, it, it is uh, it's interesting. But yeah, I, I really love that character. And I think, again, if you if you think from Mira's perspective, it's like, they're in a seaside city. He's got to have pirates. I mean, it's a fantasy story. You're going at sea. Uh, if you don't have pirates, it's such a huge missed opportunity, obviously. And this guy, mm-hmm. again, very stereotypical when you look at him, but also with a very unique personality, with his way of speaking and acting and even fighting. Uh, his, his personality itself... Is very unlike how pirates are traditionally depicted. So that's also a, an interesting thing to to note about him. I, I think. I and we already know Mira was a, a Treasure Island fan. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I mean, again, you look at the Long John Silver. There's definitely like the crutch and peg leg, for example. I mean, he doesn't have the parrot, but uh, he's he's very very in line with that kind of character. I do think, I mean, I will say that when these episodes were first coming out, we were having our translations, but I think it, it must have been Evil Genius by then at the time. They had translated Boss with a very stereotypical pirate accent, like, yar, sh- shiver me timbers kind of shit, which is, <laughs> is not actually present in the page. Uh, they just added that uh, for whatever fucking reason, right? Because pirates have to speak a certain way. Mm. But Azil, you were the first to point out uh, to me anyway, that he actually speaks with more of like a drill sergeant, drill instructor, military style. Yeah. Oh, that's thing. Yeah. Well, Which, in, in some, uh, he, he does that, uh, later on, not in this ones, not in this episode specifically, but yeah, hmm. he, he, he does not speak. I mean, that whole, uh, Yar, uh, Shiver Me Timbers kind of thing. It's a very, uh, I mean, it's purely American basically. It's something that I forgot the history of it, but basically when pirate movies were being made in the like 50s or 60s or something, uh, somebody decided to do it like that. And so that became a thing, but that's not, there's no historical reality to it. And so people from other countries have no idea what it is. Like in France, for example, we don't have uh, a thing like that. You know what I mean? 
There's no Once yar. Once again, America no. gets it all wrong. No, there's no yar. <laughs> I mean, there's such a yar to stay with the oh, Star Trek thing, but no, no. I mean, no, there's no, there's no such thing. So uh, yeah, yeah, and and so same with Japan. So you know, he doesn't have uh, any piratey thing. I mean, he talks very how to say vulgarly in parts, but that's what you'd expect from a guy like that, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, other than right. that, no, not not specifically. And yeah, when he's a uh, when they are at sea, he speaks in a very, yeah, like a drill sergeant. And that we also learn that he, he was a military instructor in the past, in his previous uh, life, basically. So <laughs> there's more to his character than that. And it's also funny. I mean, we, we'll get to that with the next episode, but yeah. there's also a whole thing about how he wants to be cold and how he <laughs> treats his man and that kind of thing. He, he's a very interesting character. I, 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 I like him a lot, honestly. Well, I guess we're going to get a little bit more of him in the next episode, which is titled A Warrior. So I can jump in with my summary. Uh, the boss pirate laughs and warns the children not to interfere with adult society and that they have to be taught a lesson. Uh, this first close-up of his character reveals that he has a skeletal face with an eye patch, a scraggly beard, and villainous mustache, as we said before. Uh, truly the stereotypical pirate. Uh, when one of the slavers that Mule has maimed begs the boss for help, the pirate corrects him in a characteristically brutal way by biting his arm and then ripping the remains of it off and reminding the crew that they've come clean, implying that their legal slave trade is uh, maybe a relatively recent turn of events. Uh, Isidro taunts him and is about to engage, but Mule jumps in to take over their fight. The pirate boss quickly reads his aristocratic fighting style and drops down to the rowboats below. Mule follows, but struggles to maintain his footing, which the pirate boss takes advantage of and soon has him at his mercy. Just in the nick of time, Isidro jumps in from above to take on the pirate boss himself. Following without difficulty as they fight over several rowboats, the boss compliments Isidro's skill and offers to take him under his wing. But when Isidro refuses, he triggers a knife mechanism in his wooden leg that Isidro only just barely dodges. Like Mule, he ends up with his on his back and the pirate boss's sword hovering just between his eyes. Shirke is about to cast a spell to bring this fight to a close, but Sonia tells her to wait. As it turns out, the rowboat that the pirate boss is standing on is the napping spot of a certain disgraced knight. Azan emerges from under a sheet throwing the pirate boss and Isidro into the water and hangrily begins dispatching the rest of the pirate crew. The pirate boss can't swim, and so while Azen has the other pirates distracted, Sonia, Shirke, Mule, and Isidro make their exit with the Kushan children in tow. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to the others, a certain swordsman in black waits in a nearby alley, making sure that things didn't get too out of hand. The group makes it makes it outside the, great, the gates of Vritanis, and Sonia and Mule agree to take in the children, narrowly failing to mention the name of the Band of the Falcon. Shirke asks if it's all right that they take the children with them, and Sonia warmly smiles at her and says they can't just abandon them, and doing so would smear mud on the memory of their time together. Moreover, she adds, their leader isn't the type to complain about more people in their group. 
In a slightly less heartfelt moment of friendship, Isidro throws Mule a sword acquired from one of the pirates, but ends up provoking him. And the two quickly turn to insults and are about to get into a fist fight in a comically short amount of time. As the two bicker, Sonia reaches out her hand and asks Shirke if she would like to come with them to return to their group. Uh, so, again, like the previous episode, it, it, it has a lighter feel to it, par- partially because of all the joking and, and Sonia's interjections and stuff like that. But it is pretty tense, the way that the pirate boss is just able to really uh, show that he is more experienced and, and has the ability to take down both Isidro and Mule, which makes sense in the context of how inexperienced both of them are, relatively speaking. And it, it just, for me, it created a sense of excitement in the sense that Isidro still has such a long way to go. And even though he had his moment in the Cleefoth, he's really just starting his, his journey as a, as a swordsman. And, uh, I really liked how Mira showed how, even though Isidro had that moment, he can't be resting on his laurels. He's not there yet. He's still got a lot of experience to gain. And this was a great way of showing kind of a continuation of when Guts explained to Isidro how, like, you need to take it, you know, use things to your advantage in a fight. And that's exactly what the pirate boss did. And uh, so that that was just a detail that I really liked. Uh, speaking of guts, I loved that little aside where they show him in the alleyway. Nobody knows that he's there yet. Uh, and it's just, it reminded me of how we're doing that community reread of volume one right now. And just thinking about that difference between guts in volume one versus guts in volume 29 and how he's finally gotten to that place where he can really look out for his friends and, and have people in his life that he can care about. I just love that. I just yeah. thought that was a, a fantastic moment. I think it's, and it's like just so heartwarming. Like mm-hmm. you have to, there's a little bit of deduction that's required to kind of get meaning from it. I think. Like I think I see that as it's not just that he was there in case he chose not to act to allow them to have this moment themselves. You know, yeah. he was going to stand in, but I think it shows growth as also like how he how he relates to people that he felt confident in them enough to allow them to resolve it. And then he just, you know, let them have that moment. Otherwise, he could have obviously guts could have stepped in and resolved things like that, you know. But he chose not to. Right, and mm. the moment with Azan kind of kind of makes you think that in a little way mm-hmm. because, be, you know, Azan like guts is well equipped to be taking out big groups of people, and you think guts could totally have just taken those guys out with no problem. But yeah, the fact that he hung back and let Isidro and to an extent Shirke. Uh, figure things out for themselves and Isidro kind of have that experience to draw from for future fights, I thought was a, a really cool, uh, I guess, a, a, um, guts having that moment of like, yeah, he can, he can do it. Yeah. Mm. It's like right. p- parent mode kind of thing. Honestly. Parent mode. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. It's also very faithful because had he shown up, uh, Mule and Sonia might have told about him to mm. Griffiths later on. So, would have been a maybe a different uh, di- different thing, but I do right. my my thought when I saw that was just I would have liked to see Gus take on these losers. You know what I mean? Like that's something you read Berserk. It's cool to see Gus 
come in a situation when things are not going well and he's like, what's going on here? He just take out his sword and he just in one swing, like half these guys are dead. And the, right. and, and the, 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 the boss is like trying to do something and he's just deflects it and, and kills him with a single punch. But <laughs> seeing, you know, I'm also glad it doesn't happen this way because this allows us to have this great scene with the kids and then Azan at, at the end, which is even, it's different, but it's also great. And I really, for the, you know, nothing in the world I wouldn't want it replaced. So that's, that's what it evoked to me, that, that feel of, uh, yeah, just uh, it's a series that's always evolving. And so we see Gus being there and there's that possibility. And then there's him not acting because he's letting the kids have their moment. Uh, and it's also as a reader, you're like, sure, I'm fine with it. I'm fine with seeing Isidro and Shiruki and Mule and Sonia have the little thing and Azan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. About Azan, it's interesting that Sonia appears to notice him before the readers yeah. even know. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, uh, she can see the future, so yeah. But I mean, she, it's kind of a, it's kind of a strange way to reveal it. Like Sonia says, "Wait, ah, looks like we're okay," and it's not even for a couple more panels where we see that Azan is under the sheet there. You know, so that's interesting little use of her power. I yeah, it's a. I mean, I think it's a way for Mura to make Shuke notice what's going on. Where uh, mm-hmm. there's a few things like that throughout these uh, these scenes where she's like, hmm, uh, it's going to be like that. Uh, you know, earlier on also, when the kids are being taken as slaves, she says, oh, well, uh, I guess it's no loss if the city is burned to the ground. Basically, she says something right. like that. And so that's mm. already, sure, at that time is already, hmm, what? What, what? What are you talking about? Right. And so it's already a, a window into the fact she can see the future. She already knows what's happening to the, what's going to happen to the city. So yeah, it's, um, it's what I mentioned earlier. It's, you know, part of her character and why she's different like that. Azan does this thing after he makes his full reveal, takes his, the, you know, the, what's the, the tarp off of the boat. He sees, he sees, I think he sees kids that are, you know, being rounded up by pirates yeah. He pauses and then makes a pose, basically, to to make his big proclamation that justice will be served, right? Yeah. Um, I thought that was really cool that – what's the word for it? Like, he's not just going to jump in there in the action. He has to make sure he acts as the hero, too. He's the chivalrous knight. He has to let them know what the deal is, <laughs> I guess, is the, is the thing he's doing. Yeah. Yeah, like it's, it's a classic. I mean, it feels like a very classic uh, hero call. Was like, sure, justice is coming for you. And then he just run, <laughs> run up to them. He's like, I don't need to speak. Like, I, I, I like that they basically he, how to say, he uh, anticipates that they might complain and try to explain things away. And he's like, I don't care. I there's nothing to say. I'll just, I'm just going to destroy all of you <laughs> because I, I, feel, also, I feel in my heart that you are, you know, guilty. It's also ironic because he just finished like full page of, you know, proclamations. And then he's like, no need for words. And then he starts, you know, battling them after that. So, yeah. Why? Well, um, um, yeah. So because of the way they translated it, but basically that's true. Saying like, yeah, there's no need to say anything more basically. A mule notices uh, a witch, you know, he sees Shirke comments on it, but he's obviously ignorant of the importance of witches. Um, so to me, that's a, just a tiny, tiny clue that Griffith obviously is not sharing 
all these details with everybody. He has compartmentalized how he interacts with his subordinates, right? The apostles are aware of the importance of witches or a witch, right? Well, I Hence mean, the some of them, the ones he sent to, mm-hmm. like on on the on that mission to kill Froa, for example. But I don't think he even tells this guy anything more that's necessary. You know, be, besides, I mean, the lieutenants obviously like Zod, Grumbled, uh, Locust. Sure. But I feel like it's just very close circle of people he tells things to. And even then, he probably only tells them what they need to know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I think it betrays a sort of, uh, it seems like he is a transparent leader, like, and, but he obviously has compartmentalized or separated duties that they don't, he does not want them to know about. You know what I mean? And it's not just that he's always shown as doing things on the up and up. The smiling face, right? But obviously, the fact that his subordinates don't know something like that means that, you know, he's obviously not operating that way. Sure. I mean, even beyond that, the fact uh, Sonia would offer to Shirke for Shirke to join them. Yeah. While totally unaware of what, how the yeah, complicated I mean, that would have been, Griffith right? Griffith actually sent people to kill her master and, like, if Shirke hadn't escaped, they would also have killed her. So it's it's a very... I mean, there's a kind of a sinister aspect uh, when Sonia's saying, uh, I forgot if it's in this one or the next one, it's like, oh, there's many people. Oh, it's, in, it's, in, uh, it's in Small Supper, where it's like, there's many people of all kinds and even some that aren't human. Yeah, and it's that's like, this episode. Yeah, it's like... Uh, yeah. These aren't just that's a really... not humans, they're like monsters. Mm-hmm. It catches yeah. Shirke's attention, but no, they don't do anything more with it. Hmm. That was a really good point because I was thinking with the with the Kushan children and how Sonia was just like, oh yeah, we'll take him in. It's not like our our leader is is worried about that sort of thing. It does show that compartmental compartmentalization where he would take in all these orphans, but you know what would happen to Shirke that that she doesn't know about. That's kind of an interesting yeah. point. Yeah, despite her foresight, she's pretty clueless about the actual nature of things. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. That's a great yeah. detail. So that's part of what makes her character who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like... So about the boss, there's something interesting here, which is when the guy calls him boss and telling him to help, he bites his hand. And he's like, what? What did you say? And he goes like, Captain, <laughs> yeah. Captain. He's like, basically, don't call me boss because we are not pirates anymore. No, we are merchants. But <laughs> after the events in Britannis, when they're back at sea and they're back to being pirates, somebody calls him captain and he does a reverse where he's like, call me boss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's why we call him boss, specifically the boss, because that's why he likes to call. And in Japanese, mm-hmm. it's okashira. So uh, it's, it's a very, it's a kind of a specific term to say like leader, uh, boss, it's the kind of thing uh, thugs like that would use. Well, it's, it's kind of funny that, you know, there's a lot of things like that with his character where he just tells them one thing and the other, or he's very stubborn like a shark. They've got a lot of jokes like that with him. And it just, I mean, it just cracked me up when I read it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the way he, he's biting his hand that is wounded and the guy's <laughs> agonizing face. And then mm-hmm. he just <laughs> rips off the, the end, you know, the, the hand because it was just attached by a, a tiny bit of, of skin. And it's just... I mean, it's just hilarious. Yep. I know. It's so funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's frothing at the mouth. Yeah. 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 Mazga style. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Mule and Isidro here. 
you know, actually boss comments on it, but the fact that uh, mule is more of a traditionally trained fighter uh, that can't absorb, you know, variances in the fight, you know, and here the boss knocks on the boat to make it wobble and that throws off mules uh, ability to balance and he gets an opening because of that drops his sword even. Uh, but his Citro has no problem doing that because he's a versatile fighter, uh, resourceful fighter used to fighting on unpredictable circumstances and unpredictable enemies. Right. So he makes them quite a bit more adept at something like fighting the boss on a, from, from boat to boat to boat, uh, than mule. So I thought that was yeah. neat. Yeah. He's always rolling around. Uh, so that's why, and, and mule doesn't just drop his sword. I mean, the, the boss actually disarms him. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's the thing. But yeah, what's interesting here and, uh, that the boss comments on afterwards is that Isidro's weakness I mean, in in air quotes, his weakness is that he doesn't have like enough killing intent, basically. What is they would mm-hmm. call sakki in, Jap- in Japanese, where uh, whereas Mule, he's been to war, so again he he fights to kill, but he he basically says that uh, Isidro doesn't have that that instinct yet. And what's interesting is that to goes back to what I was saying earlier, it's really the reverse of normal people and even of Gus when he was young where Isidro's been fighting a lot of supernatural creatures like uh, specters and skeletons and all kinds of things like that and basically surviving uh, supernatural monsters but he doesn't really have any real experience fighting humans Uh, and so that's a really interesting thing for his character it's like a reverse development in a way so that's, that's also what I found really interesting about this as a way his character, yeah, is just developed almost backwards as far as fighting goes compared to somebody like Mule who's, yeah, trained as a noble, so he knows how to fight the proper way and then went to war and has been fighting in war. So he's uh, more like Gus when he was young, basically. Uh. I found that pump, that point about Isidro very endearing, actually, because it made me think like he's been spending this whole time protecting humans. Yeah. And now that he has to kill humans, it's kind of uh, uh, gives him pause. Yeah. And even if you look at this whole battle, he just cuts people's legs and arms. And so he actually cuts their arteries. It's like, oh, I'm bleeding to death. So they're probably still dying. <laughs> but he's not like cutting their heads off or stabbing them in the face, which Mule does. And that's also a big difference. And it does show, I mean, a certain maybe innocence. Uh, I know it's a, it's kind of weird to say so about somebody fighting people to the death, but still, you know, he's not, he's not like that. Whereas again, if you go back to Guts, for example, he would just cut people's heads off at the same age. Uh, and same, same with Mule. So yeah, I agree with you. It's, uh, it's endearing. He's not somebody who's in it to, yeah, just butcher people, basically. That's not who he's been so far. And I think that's also part of his, uh, of his development. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Off to the next one. Sure. I do, I do want to say one more thing about Mule. Uh, when he actually, when Isidro gives him the sword and Mule complains that he won't be fighting with a stolen sword. And Isidro is basically making fun of him, like, how are you going to protect these people without a weapon? Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I think it does really show what kind of a character Mule is, uh, you know, a bit high and mighty. And, uh, and Isidro's where, where he's just teasing him and making fun of him. 
uh, and provoking him to actually get down and fight him. So yeah, that's, that's just <laughs> something that uh, I I quite liked. Um, so next episode is a small supper. Uh, it starts with a dramatical lead shot as Shuke hears Sonia's offer to come with her. Uh, she paints a picture of a place of tolerance for those who can't find their place in the world. Meanwhile, Isidro and Mule are duking it out, and Isidro can't help but look at Shuke as she answers, getting punched right in the face as a result. Seeing Isidro fight and feeling God's presence nearby, Shuke declines the offer, saying she has a place to return to. The girls do exchange their names, at least, and so do the boys as their fight comes to its end in a draw. As Sonia and Mule leaves, she tells Shuruke to leave Ritanis as quickly as possible and through telepathy uh, shows her a vision of what will happen to the city. As they walk away, Sonia tells Mule she's certain that she and Shuruke will meet again. With them gone, Isidro grudgingly apologizes to Shuruke for his earlier words about her clothes and she also apologizes for her own words and her stubbornness. She thanks him for coming to her help. Gats, who had been waiting at the gate, is leaving ahead of them. We cut to that evening with a group in an inn filled with rowdy patrons. Uh, Farnese has helped Shuke get dressed in more common clothes that they got from the inn's owner so that she can be less conspicuous. She's not comfortable in them, but will have to endure it while they're in the city. A group of drunkards comes around and heckles the women in the group, with one staining Shuke's new clothes by swinging his cup around. Tempers rise as Shiruko, as Isidro uh, calls him out and Guts wallops the guy right in the face, sending him flying back as back for getting her dress dirty. He calls her family, which has a big effect on her. Things quickly degenerate into a general bar fight and Shiruko reflects on the fact that despite all the vulgarity, foolishness and ugliness in the city, she can still smile. And that is it. So um, it's a very dense, very dense episode with uh, lots of things going on. There's a lot of great humor in it, uh, especially Isidro and Mule's fight. I uh, really, really like a lot of funny stuff. Um, I think it's uh, it sets up also a future encounter for Sonia, Shiruke, Mule and Isidro, respectively, which I was really looking forward to um, in the past. Uh, I really love the way Mule leaves saying, I remember that name. And, uh, you know, it's Ijidodo because he can't, uh, Isidro's mouth was fucked, so he couldn't say his name right. And it always makes me think of, uh, Silat and Guts in volume nine, where yeah. when Silat is defeated, he's like, uh, Guts, uh, I remember that name. And it's basically, it's almost <laughs> the same line, basically, except this one is Ichidodo and, I was looking for, uh, I was always looking forward to them meeting again and him calling him Ijidodo. You know, you, totally. you knew it was coming and that was great. So just amazing. Um, Azan is a knight, uh, you know, outside the bar, uh, scrounging for food against the dog. Also, I mean, amazing well, little scene, but really great showing what he's been up to since we last saw him. Uh, and I was really glad, by the way, of his return in the series. We didn't mention that earlier, but it's been yeah. a while since, since we saw him, and I was—it's a really cool comeback, and I really love that character. So yeah, so yeah, uh, the bar, uh, the bar fight scene—I think is really great. Uh, it feels like a oh, very so classic thing. Uh, so it's so cool. Uh, we also see a shot of Ritani's destruction. And I remember at the time that was kind of a big deal that we knew the city was going to be destroyed. 
what was going on, what was going to happen, that kind of stuff. And uh, beyond that, as far as the artwork is concerned, I noticed there's a lot of uh, pretty challenging angles Mira went for, which I found interesting, especially uh, once they're in the bar with Farnes' face. Uh, there's one with God's face as well, where it's really unconventional angles. And uh, I always like to pay attention to these little things because it's Mira just not you know, resting on his laurels, always trying to do a little more, a little different thing. So yeah, I think that's uh, that's it for me. What do you, what do you guys think? Didn't Mira correct uh, one of Guts's faces from like a lower angle, looking up at him after he slugged that dude in the face? Uh, yeah, that's one uh, one where he's after he shakes his hand, basically. Yeah, that one. He, yeah, that's the one. I think he changed the the neck specifically from what I that's remember. That's right. It was wider before, a wider neck. Yeah, as I recall. Uh yeah, it's a real bright spot uh, in this whole sequence, in this whole portion of the series, honestly. Uh, Guts standing up for Shirke in this way, not just, uh, I don't know, being the black swordsman, you know what I mean? But really, Guts uh, standing up for his friends in this way, making Shirke smile. It's a big it's a big moment for them. And as I said it before, uh, it's, it's not enough to show that they just travel together. You know, they have to show that they're important to each other. And that's what this episode does really well. And, and for me, why it's so memorable uh, is this is this supper scene, yeah. dinner scene? Yeah, he yeah, uses. I, uh, go ahead, Cops. Oh no, I was just gonna say I really like Shirakai smashing the bottle over the that dude's head. It, it during this the scene where she's talking about like how she's living in this vulgar world and she's thinking about uh, her mistress and you know. Uh, She's sort of has to come down on a vulgar level here and not use her magic. But, you know, even though she's, uh, you know, hanging out with all these cretins, she can still smile because she's kind of has a family. It's very, very sweet. Well, yeah. I think she's uh, embracing that part of humanity. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Instead of seeing it yeah. as a from an outsider's perspective. Yeah, it is gross. Human, the human world is much more vulgar than what she's used to, but now she's, uh, kind of become a participant, not just an observer. Uh, and so, yeah, she's embracing yeah. it in a way. And so she's, mm. can, she can now smile, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. To, to go back to the word family. So in Japanese it's uchi, which is a word for house, home, basically, but in this context, it means family. Um, Dark Horse, they went for a different thing. He says, our girl. And Shiruke sings, our. So as if, oh, I'm also his girl. But actually, that's not, that's not what's done in, in Japanese. He, he uses uchi and she sings uchi. So in this context, it really means a family, like one's home, basically. Hmm. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty specific to the Japanese language, I guess. Doesn't necessarily translate in English that uh, thing of home and family, but yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it does convey that uh, God sees his companions and more than just traveling partners. It's people he cares about, and uh, and yeah, that has a big uh, impact on her. Um, yeah. Sonia's reveal that she can see the future and is shown to the reader in a way we we knew that she could. It was explicitly shown to us in Volume Twenty Three apart from what she says in volume 22. Um, but seeing it in this way, uh, it is very enigmatic and it does surprise Shirkei. It, it should surprise readers because as Azil said, 
you know, we don't know the nature of what this conflict will be in the city. Uh, and it looks completely decimated with tons of hundreds of bodies, right? So it is a shocking moment uh, to think about what's going to happen in the next few episodes. Yeah. But also it's it's doing the next step with what Sonia can do for, for readers, uh, I think. It's just showing what the power is like. I thought mm. that was very cool. Yeah. Yeah, for real. Uh, uh, go ahead. No, no. You, you go. The uh, the moment when uh, Sidro and Shirake are basically saying sorry about the whole conflict thing, because Sidro did make her run off by doing the whole thing with the hat. Um, he's apologizing, and but he's, he can't talk. And so he uses <laughs> Puck as an interpreter <laughs> yeah. or translator in a way, because Puck can, of course, read his feeling, right? And so he's saying the words that Sidro can't say because of his lips. And so Shirake says, thank you for coming. And then, even though Isidro is not saying anything, Puck adds a line as if to say what Isidro is saying, which is, I was no use at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was good. Yeah. it's uh, The whole thing is pretty great. And, I mean, yeah, when he, he's using Puck, uh, because Puck is saying, like, he's translating what he says because he can't speak at first. And then when Ivara is like, what? What? I can't understand. Mm-hmm. He actually grabs Puck and starts speaking. It reminds me, you know, in Independence Day, when the oh, yeah. alien uh, grabs a uh, data, know, Brent, Brent Spiner, yeah, and it just smashes his face against the window. He's like, eh, yeah, yeah, it re- reminds me of that. <laughs> <laughs> that face, yeah. Lump, lumpy face of Sidro is an iconic era for him. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for real. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, uh, I think it's a very important for the two of them, for Isidro and Shuriki. Uh, beyond, because you know they've, all, they've they've got a pretty special relationship where Isidro is basically jealous of her and what she can do, and he feels inadequate because like she's really cool and powerful, and he wants to be he wants to become someone, you know he wants to become a great guy, but he's got a ways to go with that, and he's never going to be able to unleash like a, a nuclear explosion like like she can do. So it's it's an interesting thing, and I feel I've always felt like there was even a bit of a romantic thing, even like a not not a big thing, but like a seed between them. Yeah. Because obviously Shuriki's got a crush on Guts at this point, but even when when Sonia mentions it, you know, she's like she's like, oh no no, it's not him and whatever, and she's blushing and so on. But that whole little thing, I feel like, could have been the beginning of. I don't know, maybe a little more between them, way down the line, you know. So that, that, at least that's how I perceive it. Oh, for sure. Isidro is the Roderick to Shirke's. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because he he's <laughs> yeah. in his own way. I mean, he's very, he's really vulgar and uncaring, and he's very different from her. But in his own way, he cares about her, and we see that throughout the series again and again. So, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if he might not have Worn her down eventually. <laughs> I hope it wouldn't just be wearing her down. I hope it'd be yeah, I know. a little more consensual. <laughs> I know. Settle for this asshole. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the best I can do. <laughs> you know, that's uh, the plight of woman everywhere mm-hmm. in the whole wide world. I guess that's the best I can get. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> Tale as old as time. 
But I do uh, like when when Guts actually does begin fighting. You know, he's obviously he's fighting like the Dreamcast game when you don't want to get the sword out. He's just doing his little punches. He's not doing <laughs> his full strength. He could obviously. He doesn't want to completely slaughter the entire bar. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, because yeah, that's what's great about it. It's, it's, yeah. it's a bar fight. They are not pulling weapons. They are just sure, sure. just punching each other in the face. And that whole, I mean, that whole thing is amazing. I mean, where else do you see guts? Like he gives a <laughs> some guy a, a, a an uppercut, and the guy just flies off. It's it's just mm. great. I mean, it's great. That that whole panel is kind of crazy to look at because guts has got like people hanging off of him. He just looks massive. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a great and shot. But the foreground has that action as well. It's just a really well done shot. Yeah, for right. real. And there's these two small lines with uh, Serpico and and Isidro that. I mean, I bet half the readers have never noticed uh, Serpico's line because it's so it's so small. I've never uh, seen it until now. Yeah, it, it is so small and in the background. And I, I'm honestly, I'm even surprised uh, Dark Horse didn't miss it themselves. Yeah. They got it. But yeah, yeah. Just, uh, you know, one of these many, like we were mentioning at the beginning of the podcast, super small lines, super small stuff uh, Mura adds in. <laughs> The um, you mentioned it, but I wanted to at least spell it out that uh, Azan is back, you know, and I really I think you guys have heard me and as you'll say so, but like I really like Azan, I really yeah. like that kind of character, um, the chivalrous knight, uh, but in a way that he's so embraces that character that it's kind of endearing in a way, yeah, he's so simple and single focused kind of he's character like, that's he's like the one true knight in Berserk's yeah. world, there's only him. I like characters that have a single focus like that. It's it's that's just a trait that I like in all sorts of different medium. But uh, anyway, he's back, and what's interesting or notable about that is that Mira had sort of telegraphed that Azan would be coming back in a two thousands uh, postcard, yeah. two thousand one postcard, yeah, uh, a New Year's postcard, of course, that he sends to fans. We saw Azan's head and face, and you know it was that was towards the tail end of Millennium Falcon. And so, you know, he was already on the pages there. But when we didn't see him in the focus for the next, what, three volumes, it was like, wait, is he coming back? So it was a long time when we figured Azam would be there, but he wasn't, he wasn't around. And it was years later, years later, but we finally came back. This is 2005. So four years yeah. later, he's back. Just goes to show how far ahead he plans. Mm-hmm. Planned. Yeah. Well, he's also, uh, I mean, very practically, he couldn't have come really come back before Britain is because there was no, like, they weren't going to meet him in the forest to Flora's place, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. yeah. but yeah, it is interesting the way he's just, he's just there. He was sleeping on a boat like a, like a bum. <laughs> yeah. And then back, he's back in the picture. That's, that's pretty great. And now he's, uh, the food that falls from the, the inn or the, or the bar where they're eating you know, he immediately looks around and scrounges it, and there's a dog behind him growling at him. Because <laughs> the dog wanted that food. That's the yeah. dog's food. <laughs> yeah. I love that both the dog and Azan notice the food at the same time, and he's, yep. he's closer to it, and so the dog is pissed and barks at him. I mean, that's just that's such a small detail, but it's so great. It's so great. It's, yeah. it's the kind of thing that could be in a, you know, a little four panels comic strip, and it just works perfectly. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, we don't name Azan during either episode, of course. And he has his mask on or his helmet on. Uh, and he looks so strange. And for the longest time, I really did think that he was going to be disfigured uh, in a way. 
uh, under the mask because there are shots of him when his eyes are fully open. You know what I mean? Like they're just like circles behind his mask uh, in this episode and the previous episode as well. So yeah, I always wondered what's going on with him and his face behind the mask. I think it's just that he's ashamed mm. to show his face because yeah. uh, he's failed his mission. It's a kind of a self-imposed thing, which doesn't make any sense to anyone except him, but he's still, he's still <laughs> doing it. Which well, again, he did return, though. He returned to the Holy See to debrief, and then he yeah. was disgraced after that. So it, there's, it's possible that, you know, he had some rough treatment. I don't know. Uh, I'm glad they didn't touch the merchandise. Yeah. <laughs> I, he escaped I, in any case. Yeah, honestly, I don't think they just disfigured him, disfigured him or anything like that. I think he's just he's just being a weirdo. Yeah, maybe they shaved his uh, his beard, and that's why he's been. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, but then again, he's growing it back. Yeah, he's been he's been wearing that uh, helmet for so long that by the time he removes it, he's gonna be old beard, nothing else left. I guess it is kind of funny that from his perspective, that oh, I can't show my face, I can't let people know it's me, and everyone's like, "Who the hell is this?" You know, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's the. Uh, Really great episode, and it is very mixed. It's this episode's all over the place. You know, we wrap up the Sonia Mule thing. We allude to what's happening in Vertanis. We have this scene with guts and the family thing, and it's just uh, it's all over the place. A very very dense episode yeah. for sure. Yeah, and I mean, there's even like a bit of action. Like there's two different bits of action because Sonia and Shuriki have their talk. Meanwhile, uh, Mule and Sidro start and finish their fight. Then we've got the bar fight scenes that also. Just in a few, a few pages, so it's very lots of thing in a you know small package. Yeah. Uh, All right. Moving on to the Sorry. next one, which is over to Gabolatula. Okay. So this one's called Homing. Um, in this episode, we transition back to Griffith's side of the story. At the base camp, Charlotte and her attendant Anna are toiling away at baking a cake. Charlotte bashfully heads over to Griffith and gives him some, or to give him some, and uh, Anna notices how happy Princess Charlotte is. Even before Wyndham fell to the cushion, she had never seen uh, Princess Charlotte this cheerful. Charlotte admires Griffith from a distance, comparing his image to a painting cut from eternity, and that it feels like she mustn't touch him. Right at that moment, Sonia and Mule arrive. Sonia runs right to Griffith and simply leaps into his arms for a hug. Sonia tells Griffith that she had a great time at the sea and she even met a friend who we know to be Shirke. Charlotte finally musters up the courage to offer Griffith and his friends some sweets and Sonia leaps right in there and snatches a piece, chomping right into it. She compliments the cake before offering Griffith a piece herself, attempting to steal Charlotte's special moment. Nonetheless, Griffith poetically expresses how pleased he is by this treat and shows his gratitude to the princess. Mule yanks away Sonia and gives her a scolding for being such a brat. He asks her to have empathy for the princess, uh, you know, as a woman and as someone who is able to read some people's thoughts. Mule points out that Charlotte spent many lonely and anxious years among, among the enemy. Now she can finally be reunited with her lover. And then, right at that moment, Sonia stuffs her piece of cake in Mule's mouth to shut him up. She then leaves to take a stroll by herself. 
nighttime rolls around, and she comes across Irvine, who's playing his lute, alone by a campfire. Sonia asks if he can, she can warm herself by the campfire, and Irvine says, as you wish. She notices that the song he's playing sounds a bit lonely, and asks him if, that, if he feels lonely uh, being by himself all the time. Irvine says that since he's a hunter, being alone makes him feel a lot calmer. When asked, he goes on to say that not all, all hunters hunt alone, but he prefers to. He would run through the mountains and rivers, chasing his prey. He would lurk alone deep in the forest. Through so many nights, he'd lose track of time, and then, before he knew it, he, too, became a beast. Sonia then confides in Irvine, telling him that she was alone, too, because of the things she saw and the voices she heard that others couldn't. She lived in a world that was different from others around her. Sonia notes that Princess Charlotte wasn't the only one who was lonely and anxious. She then dozes off, and Irvine puts his coat around her so she can rest peacefully by the fire while he continues to play his music. That night, Sonia has a dream of a kite and an owl playing in a moonlit forest. The episode closes with an image of Griffith looking on as the moonlight shines on him. And, uh, yeah, this is a really good episode. Um... I was going to say it's eventually essentially about three lonely Griffith fans. No. <laughs> Mira did a really masterful job of diving deeper into these characters one by one and making us empathize with them. Um, and I, I myself found, found myself frustrated a little bit with uh, each of these characters, like with Charlotte and how she idolized Griffith and that, you know, kind of paralyzed her from even giving him a piece of cake, but then you remember that she spent all that time locked up fantasizing her fairy tales of being rescued by her knight in shining armor, and now here he is, and he exudes an inexplicable larger-than-life aura, you know? And obviously, I'm frustrated by Sonya, who's, who's totally, totally being a brat and trying to mess up Charlotte's uh, moment after she like toiled and toiled making this cake and uh you know she could sense how charlotte was feeling but again you look a little bit closer and you see that sonia was a person yearning for a human connection and although she's a medium <clears throat> excuse me although she's a medium in the world of berserk when i hear somebody who hears and sees things that other other people can't um, I imagine somebody suffering from mental illness, you know, and that's really sucky. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, obviously Irvine, who's, uh, an apostle, a total monster to our, us as readers of this series. It, this is the, one of the most touching moments in the series. And, you know, we get shown a side of apostles that, we rarely get to see him. And I, I, I noticed that um, Irvine and how he treats Sonia is a lot like, um, it reminded me of Guts consoling Sheer K on the beach after um, Flora died. Mm. And it's, you know, another beast-like being showing kindness. And that Berserk is all about showing the multitude and 
multitude of human and beast-like qualities that every just about every character has. Um, when it comes to the art, uh, Mira has a, a really does this really well. He he shows a serene and cozy atmosphere right in the middle of a battlefield. Um, both light, wind, nature, and even the spooky darkness surrounding Irvine are all very calm. Um, finally, my final note is that we, we got a rare uh, funny Griffith moment when he points out Mule's fucked up face. <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to ask you about your face later. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Where does that where does that happen? I'm missing that. Oh, is it right as he appears? Um, it's like I'm going to ask you about. Oh, I see it. It's a small yeah. line. I see it below his standard line. I thought you were saying it was like a caricature in yeah. Griffith face or something. No, nah. I see it. <laughs> anyway, very good episode. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to at the start of it. I just wanted to point out one of the weird things about this episode is that uh, we just finished episode 349. Uh, that was the last one. And now we're jumping to episode 358. That's the actual sequence. It was uh, reordered whenever it came into a volume. So mm. uh, it was moved about 10 episodes back on its position whenever it was bound. Normally yeah. this would have come right before that big tiger in the ballroom scene in volume 30, but it has moved back to volume 29 here. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's Whoa. really weird. Yeah. It serves as obviously closure for Mule and Sonya's journey into Vertanis, and it gives a little bit of breathing room between what kind of is the two halves of this volume for Guts Party. Uh, it's just a weird, it's a, it's a weird single episode uh, narrative jump. They don't do that that often. Mm. Not that often. I don't so. think it's that weird, though. It's just that in terms of uh, the timeline, basically, Mira probably felt that it was odd to have basically this be a flashback uh, before the, the ballroom. Right. Forgot about uh, that. Versus happening in sequence. And that's probably why it, why it was moved. Mm. Because otherwise it would be like uh, in the next volume. It's a long time, basically. So I think I think that's why uh, he decided to move it like that, which I, I can understand. Mm. Honestly, it, it doesn't bother me. Uh, it was notable at the time because it's such a such a big gap uh, and it's it's happened a few times before moving episodes like that this is the biggest though in terms of the number 10 episodes out it's a yeah. lot but it's kind of inconsequential in the storytelling they're basically separate stories uh, for the all intents and purposes of this episode uh, I do think this episode is it just continually nauseates me a little bit because it's it's Charlotte trying to curry favor with fucking Griffith and Sonia trying to curry favor with Griffith. It's just this <laughs> yeah. guy is not worth your time, ladies. I mean, it's yeah. it's just a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, he sucks. Well, I mean, it shows also. Uh, I mean, Charlotte Gobbs mentioned it, but she's also the product of her education. She's lived uh, her whole life. Uh, cloistered away from uh, the real world and real world stuff. And so she's got this very, she's like the ultimate naive girl, basically, even though she mm -hmm. did participate in the plot to extract him from jail way back when. But otherwise, she's a very, very demure and, and naive girl. And and even the fact, what, what makes me laugh about this that not many people probably catch on is that she's baking a cake but I'm not sure how much baking she's actually doing because she's got like three helpers with her. Oh yeah, that's there's, true. <laughs> there's Anna and there's two other women. And I'm wondering just how much of the work she's actually been doing. Like she's probably burned 10 of these cakes you know, before <laughs> managing one. 
And uh, yeah, and by the way, that's a that's a Baumkuchen cake. It's a German cake. Uh, just for the record, I once made a thread about this. Yeah, I recall. And then yeah. they, they ended up selling it, didn't they? At one of the yeah, yeah they exhibition did sell things? it at the exhibition at the original. Uh, the first two the first two uh, locations for the exhibition they sold Charlotte's Baumkuchen cake. So it's it's a pretty popular type of cake in Japan. So you can find it, uh, you can find it relatively easily. So yeah, they found a partner. I kind of wish I'd, uh, we, we had been able to, to get one in Sapporo. It's unfortunate. Yeah. It's, it's already stopped. Yeah. Well, the, uh, anyway, but yeah. Our own. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I understand what you mean, Walter. The fact, uh, basically Sonia is trying to, to steal, uh, Charlotte's Thunder and, and listening to what Gobs was saying, I was imagining Ivarela. Being mm-hmm. being in there and being like, this is a war. You gotta do what you gotta <laughs> do to get your man. <laughs> Basically, yeah. you know, like there's no trick is dirty enough. You you can you you gotta go in there. So I'm like, even I would approve of Sonia's tactics. Basically, yeah, it's it's actually a. I think it's a pretty tough thing to do. What Mira's doing, it's portraying a rivalry between women, which is not something that he has done ever before yeah you know so it's not the same as a battlefield right uh it's a different yeah. it's a little nuanced thing that's happening here well, where to be fair he's depicting a, a rivalry between uh a woman a naive woman and a spoiled brat yeah so <laughs> sure sure and yet somehow still making them both seem very uh you can really empathize with both yeah of them oh in, totally in the yeah. same episode which i thought was great and even with mule and everybody and i mean yeah i guess it's worth pointing out because you know, he was it's nothing new that mira had incredible range could go from every theme and could do like the most absurd comedy and you know very 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 different things he was very good at everything basically but yeah it's yeah. true that here what's interesting is that the the least human character of course is griffiths because he's not human and he's there almost he's almost like he's well an alien really seinfeld yeah he's just the the straight man iron wish the other characters revolve and like you said yeah almost like an alien i guess uh, Alf is a better comparison than Seifel. Alf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I just ate a cat, but uh, I'll have some of your cake. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this is a kind of joke anybody under 40 will not understand. <laughs> our, de- our demo is solid. We're good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, he's very, of course, he's always out there and very like, not of this world. And so it, it's kind of, uh, I agree that it's kind of incredible that he managed to make these three characters look really human and all have their specific emotions that you can understand and empathize with. Both Mule, who's annoyed and trying to be reasonable and gets shut up and is a bit, a little bit uh, miffed. And Sonia, who's, who has a crush and feels frustrated that she can't actually act on it because yeah she she knows that charlotte's the one and of course charlotte who's very i mean it's beyond being fooled by griffiths she's head over heels with him uh but she really does not see the big bigger picture so yeah she's just very very impressive like you said and all that in just a few pages yeah Yeah, i I did want to ask is do you do you guys think there's any significance, any meaning to the final image of Griffiths just standing there in the night? I mean, sure. I, I have often wondered about that and the way the episode opens as well. He's doing the same thing. He's standing in the, on a hill looking distant, looking off into the distance rather. 
And then the same yeah. thing, it is almost the exact same pose as if nothing has happened at the last page. It's very strange. Um, I don't know what it means other than he is probably just surveying the battlefield and he's meant to be apart from the group because he is so different, you know, but I don't know. Sure. I don't know that he's doing any action necessarily. I do think that final page does do a good job of doing the hint with the moon, you know, mm. the moon being there and him being there yeah. to later spell out what's going on with the moon. Um, like I, I look at it in the volume and it's almost like, oh, a cool picture of Griffith mm-hmm. is in here. Yeah, in terms of you the know, function just, of it, I don't I don't know that he's necessarily doing anything or or it means it personally. I don't think it means anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, go ahead. No, I also think it's uh it's basically uh a nice shot of Griffith. And it doesn't need to be anything more than that as a way to conclude that episode. But I also yeah. think if you think about where this uh, episode was in line before, uh, how to say, before it was moved from one volume to another, uh, you know, we were about to see the invasion of uh, of Britannis by the Christians uh, at night. So it does also serve to mm. maybe kind of allude to that, uh, to the fact that Griffiths might have been aware of what was going on and that basically it started. Mm-hmm. But That's true. Because, because it is such a, I, I don't want to say generic, but it's just really a nice shot of Griffiths. You know, even if you take it out of that specific context, it still works fine. It's just that he's there, he's perceiving things that other people can't perceive, maybe things that things are being set in motion or whatnot. Uh, it just works fine like that because again, he's not a, a human character. So we are not privy to his thoughts. Like, you know, after the incarnation, really uh, the dominant and most recurring thing about Griffiths is that you don't know what he's thinking. He's always there. He's always got that strange look on his face and whatever's going on, you don't know what he's thinking. I do remember thinking the episode title being very strange to me, homing. Um, and I always, for a while, I was like, oh, it, maybe it relates to Griffith looking weird. Maybe he's doing something, homing in. <laughs> it's like, no. it's about Sonia returning. Yeah, I mean. Uh, like a hummingbird. We we, yeah, we had a public talk about that on, on the front back then. I'm actually the one who chose that title. I'm surprised hmm. uh, Dacos kept the same one. Basically, yeah, it refers to hummingbirds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, it could be. Like I remember somebody, I think it was Psyche or someone like that, that proposed return to the nest. That's right. As an alternative to it. I liked homing because it was really close to the to the original Japanese meaning, which is tied to a hummingbird. And obviously that's also related to Sonia and the kite uh thing with the falcon, you know, in her little analogy. So, but yeah, it just means basically returning to the nest, like a, a bird that was away returning to its nest. So it's about uh, Sonia and Mule's return to mm-hmm. to Griffith's uh, camp, basically. I, nice. I do think Griffith eating the cake Very is good. a particularly difficult thing to look at. Uh, him smiling with his little demon eyes, chewing on a cake. That is it's creepy as hell, man. It's tough. It's tough, to, it's tough yeah. to look at, tough to watch. Yes, your cake is very good, human woman. <laughs> <laughs> Delicious. I will have more cake once your race is and been enslaved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it reminds me of the like Zuckerberg smile when he's at Congress. It's just like this, the slider Drinking goes his up. water. Yeah, yes. exactly. Drinking the water, uh, that's right. Yeah. This cake could use more sweet baby rays on it. 
the other, uh, other than the cake, uh, the other to me, other you know, memorable thing, of course, is what Irvine does. Uh, and I don't know. I, th- I think it's a sweet moment for a monster to do it. I do think it's often leaned in too much. Uh, when I see people reference it elsewhere, it's just like, um, yeah. I don't think it means anything. I don't think he's a special apostle. I think hum- apostles were always conceived, even from the count, right? As, as not being yeah. 100% pure monsters. They're, they're more like mutants. They're more like humans Whoa. with human feelings that have been mutated and stretched out, right? They're, they're, uh, what, what, what? They do like uh, there's a literal Faustian bargain in that they sacrifice someone dear to them in order to receive power. So they are they are monsters in both uh, literal and metaphysical psychological sense. That okay. Being, that then, being said, that, go ahead. What you say is true in that just because someone's a bad person doesn't mean they're like hundred percent. Evil and Precisely. can't do any single thing that's not evil. You know what I mean? There's, that's what I was trying to say was that it's not a pure monster, you know? Yeah. And that's, that would be a boring character as well. well. Actually, that's not true. I really like the God Hand. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, that's actually, that's an interesting discussion way beyond this this uh, podcast. But yeah. There is, because nowadays, you know, in many movies and stuff, every villain has to have a tragic backstory that explains why he's become bad. And he's really, he's not really bad, but he's he misunderstood. just does. You just didn't get it. Yeah. He you just didn't read Mein Kampf. You don't get yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. He just does evil <laughs> things. But so it's like uh, Thanos, he's like crying because he had to sacrifice his daughter. But I mean, fuck that. There's also a place for people who are just pure evil and they're evil because they're just like evil, you know? And so Femto, for example, the character himself, like when he's in Femto mode, uh, he doesn't have any redeeming qualities to him, but or restraints. Pretty, yeah, but that's still pretty cool, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when he's like telling guts, he's just nothing but a remnant, you know, useless piece of shit. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. That's now that's a villain. You know what I mean? And he's then he's like flicking his fingers and sending him crashing into a pillar. That's pretty cool to me. Uh, and same with Void or with Ubik, who's just you know laughing his ass off. These guys are great. But then again, it's also nice to have, uh, yeah, characters who, despite being monsters, still have a human side to them. And that's what Mura's done with, you know, almost every apostle. Not all of them. You've got the really rotten ones like uh, the Cobra Apostle in Volume 1. You've got Wild uh, in Volume 11. You've you got a bunch of these who are just pure bad. But the Count, uh, you know, Roshin. Yeah, Roshin, yeah, sure, for sure. Apostles like that, I mean, and the Beherit Apostle as well, they are the ones where by the time Guts kills them, you feel like Guts is more monstrous than them, and that's by design. Mm. That's what Mura does, or at least did, wanted to do, is that showing a little bit of the human side so that you still feel kind of almost bad for them as they die, and you still you feel like almost Guts is, is not so nice himself, even though he's actually just getting his revenge and you know these guys are still like cannibalistic monsters and so on so so yeah and what we see here is Irvine being actually what I like most about this is he's very candid about who he is when he says you know about he's talking about his hunting staying in the forest by himself chasing prey lurking alone and eventually 
I became a beast myself. I mean, he's basically saying he's an apostle himself. So that is that is pretty cool to me. That's the coolest part of this uh, this mm. moment is when he's actually telling her uh, his life story in just very few words that he eventually be- became a, a monster. But uh, but yeah, he's he's not. I mean, I don't know what else people expecting him to do. They're part of the same group. He's one of the lieutenants. He wasn't going to eat her in her sleep. <laughs> I think what's interesting to me about Irvine is that, uh, to your point, as he's very upfront and compared to Locus and, and Grunbeld, like we saw in previous volumes with Grunbeld, you don't get that air of hypocrisy yeah. about him. Yeah, he's not a pretender, which, yeah, for real. Yeah, he's there's no pretense with him. And I think that's pretty interesting. And I think that's what people gravitate towards, probably. He yeah. looks cool. It's a cool guy given the lady his jacket. It's a cool guy moment. Yeah, as well. I mean, he's playing the banjo. Yeah. Looks pretty <laughs> I relaxed. I know he's not the banjo, but I like to say Yeah, he's playing. He's playing an instrument alone by himself in the woods. He's a dark loner type. I mean, obviously, women tipping his fedora. So yeah, lady, and yeah, covering up with with his jacket. So. He's pretty cool. I, I think it's what I think is nice about it is that it gives him a very, a little bit of personality because before that we don't see too much about him and we. He's just the bow guy. Yeah, yeah. He's just a bow apostle, right? That mm-hmm. just shows up one day and uh, we don't know anything about him. So yeah, it humanizes him. It also starts a bit of a relationship between them. Right. Yeah. This in, it happens again in thirty four. With yeah. them, uh, when he comes to her rescue in the battle with Kanishka and all them, yeah. And then I feel like even later they're doing more stuff with them as well. Um, no, you know what it is? It's the continuation kind of mutating my mind here because he shows up at the pier as well uh, on the dock. Yeah, with Sonia. Well, he was available. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he he shows up uh, when uh, Rickert and and the others are rushing to Falconia. They're being pursued mm-hmm. by the cockatrice. What I mean is that's not related to Sonya necessarily, though. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. sure, sure, sure. But uh, yeah, yeah, he's a uh, he's pretty cool, and like like you said, Grill, I I like I enjoy the fact that he's pretty straightforward about what he is uh, versus Locus and Grillberg, who are both very how to say hypocritical. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a low bar to clear. Yeah, <laughs> with regards to being a nice guy apostle, but he seems to manage it. Um, scrolling through anything else left to say here. I do think it's, again, it sticks out to me as one of those strange, um, single episode narrative, uh, perspective ones that doesn't happen that often. Yeah, it's true. Usually it's like two or three, but, uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, that being said, it feels right to me in that context. Mm -hmm. Like when the, the episode order changed, never really bothered me. It was interesting at the time, but uh, it just I'm not bothered. Was... It's just still notable, though. Yeah, I'm yeah. angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying that it's. I think it's in the end, it's a it's a pretty good decision because it's even though it's a single episode narrative switch, which you mentioned, it doesn't. Uh, it's not bothering to me when I when I read the volume. No problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only thing we didn't say, we, t- we talked about this episode a lot, is that her dream at the end was of a, a kite and an owl playing on a moonlit forest, which is she's remembering her friend that she met in Vertana. She's remembering Shirke. That's the yeah. owl. 
Yeah. That's all. Just that I really do wish that was capitalized on in a way that I can believe and trust. Uh, and by that, of course, I mean, if they do play that card in the continuation, I don't know if it'll have the same oomph for power or believability as yeah. if under Mira's hand, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it's I one of those no things we lost. Right. Yeah. Fingers crossed. That's it. We'll continue on uh, for volume 29, part two in our next episode, uh, barring the release of the 372. Yeah. That's it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.